Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Ruby Rogues podcast. Uh, we are here with our panelists. We have David Brady from HeartMindCode.com, James Edward Gray from Gray Productions. We have Peter Cooper from Ruby Inside, Rails Inside, RubyFlow, and Coder.io. I'm Charles Maxwood from TeachMeToCode.com, and we have as a guest a new panelist, Evan Phoenix from Engine Yard. He is the creator of Rubinius and, uh, you know, just does some awesome stuff in the community. So uh, welcome, everybody. Hello. All right. Um, so what we're talking about this week is... Uh, kind of a, a hybrid between Ruby VMs and kind of the, the future of, of Ruby and, and where things are going to go. Um, and so I'm really excited to have Evan on the, the podcast in particular since he's actually behind one of the VMs and, you know, can add some expertise to this discussion. Uh, to start out, I really want to find out what everyone's using. So um, we're just going to go around the panel and uh, everybody who, I, I guess I'll just call on everybody one by one and uh, we'll see what everybody's using, uh, which VMs you've used and what you've used them for. So um, let's go ahead and uh, start with David. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which VMs that I've used? Uh, I've used uh, JRuby, obviously, MRI. Uh, the, well, which isn't really a VM. Um, I don't know if Yarf counts. And no. I attempted to contribute to Rubinius uh, a couple years ago, but I was really dumb and a bad programmer back then, so I failed. <laughs> I'm sure we can fix that now. Awesome. All right. Uh, what about you, James? So I've used JRuby uh, quite a bit, mostly to uh, gain access to the Java ecosystem at times. Um, and I do like that part of it. Um, one of the things I have run into a couple of problems with JRuby a few times when I was um, trying to emulate a POSIX-like environment, JRuby has a few things that are kind of difficult in a POSIX environment because it doesn't quite, you know, do things like fork and stuff like you would expect. Uh, I've used Rubinius recently. And wow, we're getting some feedback here too. You guys hear the feedback? Yeah. Uh, it it might be me. Let me uh, let me turn down my headphones a little bit. Is that any okay. better? Yes, that's fine. Yes. Better. Okay, back to where I was. Uh, I recently used Rubinius after seeing some awesome talks at RubyConf 10 about how crazy cool Rubinius has gotten, uh, and I'm really liking that. So I'm looking forward to talking to Evan more about that. Um, I think Rubinius is shaping up to be uh, one of the most transparent virtual machines um, as far as being able to look at your code and how it sees your code and things like that. And I'm really liking that. Uh, but back when I played with Rubinius, it was not 1.9 ready yet. So that was kind of making me sad. Um, but I know that's in the works. Um, and then, of course, uh, Yarv, uh, I've moved pretty much everything to Ruby 1.9 at this point. That's my my interpreter of choice, so, and I think everybody else should do the same. All right. How about you, Peter? 
I've been experimenting with most of them, um, or most of the known ones now. I wouldn't count sort of some of the older ones like Cardinal and things like that. Um, but in terms of actually using on sort of like a day-to-day basis for work and whatnot, um, it's Ruby 192 all the way, uh, MRI, of course. So, uh, But that said, um, I have been sort of messing around with the, the some of the source for that because I was trying to sort of add in a few bizarre features. Um, and I, I must admit, I think I'm probably going to end up going to Rubinius at some point. Um, but it's still kind of early days for that, and I need to really play with it a lot more. So it'll be really cool just hearing what Ev, uh, Evan sort of uh, brings to the table today, because it's just so you're just having the time to dig into it. So love to hear more about that and learn more. Right, and in the interest of saving Evan for last, I'll, I'll go ahead and chime in. Um, so far, I've really only played with uh, MRI. I've I've done a little bit with 1.9.2. Um, most of it's just been that I'm too lazy to switch, and you can all poo-poo me for that. But uh, um, let, let's see what Evans what Evan says. I, I'm kind of curious since he works so much on Rubinius, what other ones he's used. No pressure here, guys. Right? No. Nope. Uh, <laughs> no pressure. I'm just saying it because I'm in the room, right? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, obviously I use Rubinius a lot. Um, I, I'm actually kind of a weird Ruby user in a way because. Um, my every day is like, you know, working on Rubinius features and that kind of stuff. It's not, which is writing Ruby code, but it's not like writing a Rails app or writing a big application, Ruby application, other than Rubinius being a big Ruby application, I guess. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I run Rubinius the vast majority of the day because that's what I'm working on building. Uh, but I still have, you know, 187 installed that I use um, occasionally. Um, Okay. Just out of habit for the most part. Evan, do you ever play with the other virtual machines like to see the kind of things they've done and how they do that? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly read their source. Like I've gone through this, I've gone through um, 1.9 and I've gone through JRuby at different points in time um, to see. It's usually, I'm looking for a specific thing, like um, how how is... X, Y, and Z handling method caching or whatever it might be. And I will kind of dig in to, to look for that specific aspect of it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I am pretty intimately aware of how all of them function. So, All right. Well, that, that leads to a question that I have. Um, what really is the difference between them? I mean, I'm assuming they're all more or less Ruby, right? So, sure. So, so what does one give you that the other doesn't? Okay. Um, Let's see, how should I start this? I guess I'll start with 1.8, right? So um, 1.8 is mostly written by Mats. Um, obviously, it's got... So I'm going to consider all of these as broken up into sort of two big pieces, right? There's the... Um, and just for terminology's sake, I'm going to set a few pieces of terminology just for clarification. Um, I'm going to talk about the kernel... And the kernel is also synonymous with the core library. And that is, in 1.8's case, everything like the string class, the hash, all that kind of stuff. Um, that is, is that those things that are built into Ruby that you can use without having to do any requires, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm making that clarification because while talking to people, sometimes they will actually say, um, oh, do you mean the standard library? And obviously, the standard library is actually a separate piece. It's IRB and all those things that come with Ruby. So for clarification, there's the kernel of each of them, and then there is the execution engine, right? So 1.8 has obviously the kernel we're used to, all the classes and all the methods, and then its execution engine is really just sort of a, a very simple 
um, AST, AST evaluator, right? So it, it kind of does it as though if you were, you know, when, and Matt pretty freely admits this, that um, it's sort of the simplest possible way of interpreting a language, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of the CS101 way of interpreting a language. Okay. Um, so uh, that, that, I mean, that's sort of the baseline for all of these, right? So one nine obviously adds two separate things. Um, it changes the kernel, adds all the encodings and all the new APIs, fibers and all that kind of business. And then it also um, adds a bytecode VM to uh, the, as the execution engine. So um, it's sort of like another layer after the one, the, instead of evaluating the output that one eight used, it sends it through one more step where it turns it into bytecode. And the reason for that is that bytecode can be evaluated faster than you can evaluate the um, just the raw original AST that 1.8 uses, right? So that's mm-hmm. when you see the, the performance improvements between 1.8 and 1.9, that's what you're seeing. Basically, you're just seeing the difference between those two, those two things for the most part. Um, JRuby then um, obviously runs on the JVM and um, does this thing called, um, that Rubinius does too, called mixed mode, right? So one of the big things is that you're able to um, run your code, but then it can also be on the fly optimized into a more optimal form. And in the JRuby case, um, it normally runs actually similar to the way 1.8 works. It sort of just evaluates the, the, the abstract tree of code um, just by walking down using the, uh, a, you know, sort of simple tree evaluator. And then as things heat up, it actually convert them into JVM bytecode. And, and, and is, is that what's referred to as a JIT? Uh, yes, right, yes. Uh, JIT refers to anything, really any piece of technology where you have a compiler at runtime. Right? Okay. Um, so that you've been, you know, JRuby will run uh, run a method a bunch of times and then decide like, hey, you know, this method is being used a lot. We should probably go ahead and turn it into a JVM bytecode, and it will go ahead and do that. And that the piece that does that is that JIT, that compiler at runtime. Right. Um, and then obviously, um, that is sort of a, to, to sort of make it a little more meta, that is actually a JIT on top of another JIT, because the JVM has its own modes and JIT and all that kind of stuff below what JRuby does. So it's actually sort of multiple levels in the JRuby case. Hmm. Uh, and then Rubinius, um, converts uh, all code down to Rubinius bytecode um, and uh, then has a, a you know, bytecode evaluation thing um, for running that bytecode. So it's very similar to Yarv in that case. And then um, as, the, as things heat up, so as methods and blocks are used more inside the system, it will actually take those methods and ship them off to a thread that runs in the background. And um, it will compile those Threat, uh, methods and blocks and such um, into raw machine code. So rather than going to like bytecode, it actually goes raw, to raw machine code. It happens to use LLVM to do that, but that's uh, sort of an implementation detail. Right. Um, so uh, you know, those are the they all those are sort of the big the big differences, and the speed differences are really about how fast each implementation can make one of or more of those phases. Okay, so so, so oh, go ahead, James. So I I was going to ask. Um, you talked about how the LLVM 
is used on the lower level to to do the virtual machine implementation, basically. Um, it, originally, when Rubinius was planned, I believe the the plan was actually Ruby top to bottom, and then actually you've you've settled on C plus plus at the very bottom, and then and then Ruby in the core and standard library and things like that. I, if if I understand correctly, what was the reason for that change? Sure, um, that change is mostly you know pragmatism. Um, we wanted to be writing it in Ruby. Um, but at the time, um, and even to a certain extent, there's times now, and I'll elaborate, um, where it, uh, I wanted to get something out there that people could use. I didn't want this to sort of become this sort of academic project um, that was just this sort of purely something that was never going to come to fruition. And so that meant that I had to sort of decide, like, okay, well, you know, figuring out, so figuring out how to make it Ruby top to bottom is actually quite difficult. Um, you can go and look at those original prototypes. They're actually still in the Rubinius repository. They're back. They're back at commits. The very first few commits in the repository are an all Ruby VM that ran on top of one eight. I think it was one eight two at the time. One eight one. And um, but how, you know, like obviously you uh, you have to go down to the lower layer at some point. So you translate that Ruby into C or whatever you might do. That became the sort of time suck. And I wasn't really super interested in that, so I just basically decided, okay, I'm just going to drop down and I'm going to do it in, in these pieces that need to be in C. I'm just going to do it in C for now. And um, we've, over time, moved those pieces to C++. But um, for the most part, it's, a, it's purely a, pra a pragmatic thing. And um, as time goes on, we actually go back. So we've had things that, have, that we originally implemented in C++ that we, over time, actually tear out. And... Um, Make them Ruby because they're actually faster now with the JIT and everything than they than they were before. Right. So I, I have a question, and uh, it's it's a, a little different from James's question, and and that is that uh, I I mean I hear about the the JIT and the um, you know some of the other ways of uh, implementing the language, and I guess what my question is is I don't completely understand what the advantages are of. I, I mean, I can kind of see using a JIT and some of the advantages there, but what are some of the advantages of, say, using the JVM versus using um, some some of the other uh, ways of of implementing the language? Well, sure. I mean, the yeah, the the, the implementing on top of the JVM is uh, you know it's again sort of like a pragmatic thing in the case of the, uh, me dropping down to C plus plus. Um, so the JVM, think of the JVM basically as a thing that provides a whole bunch of services. Um, mm -hmm. And some of them are very high level services like turning abstract, this sort of abstract um, data structure of bytecode into machine code, right? And so um, that's just uh, uh, one, one way of doing it. Um, and the reason that, so uh, I, I can smell what the next question is, so I'm going to go ahead and answer it. So why, didn't, why doesn't Rubinius use a JVM? Um, the reason is that that wouldn't have been no fun. <laughs> I, like, I started this project for fun, and I, if I had used the JVM, uh, then I wouldn't have been able to do all the fun parts. Charles Netter just died a little inside. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe well, Charles like, finds different things fun. Yeah, I mean, when I, well, ask Charles, ask, ask, sometimes ask Charles about working on LightStep. He wrote a whole window manager for Windows. So talk about, you know, weird projects. So, um, 
I don't even know how. How do you mute this thing? I know that's what I yeah. was looking forward to. It. it uh, well, I, I think everyone's trying to uh, mitigate the. Uh, by mute the way, all sound effects. It's in preferences under uh, notifications. Mute all sound effects. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry for the break in uh, in flow there, folks. Oh yeah, that depends if you have crazy version of Skype. I'm using. I have old. I have old version. I'm using the ridiculous new version, so. Yeah, I've. Yeah, me too, and I, I hate it. Anyway. Yep. All right. Well, anyway. So, uh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, when I started this project, I started it for fun. I, I like, uh, I wanted to write a, a VM. That's that's that that's interesting to me. So that's how the whole project started, um, and uh, yeah. So. So the obvious follow-up to that is: Are you still having fun? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it's a blast. Tons uh, of fun. I, I'm kind of curious how do how do you uh, find a place like Engine Yard that will pay you to work on something like this all day? Oh, they found me. Um, they okay, uh, question: How can I find someone like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, it's funny. I just talked about this at Farmhouse Conf. Um, uh, the big thing is like, so I was doing it for fun. And so it has to be, I had to, you know, it was my hobby and I, I was doing it for fun and I wanted to be working on it. Um, so I kept, I just basically kept working on it. I would talk to people about it and some people thought I was crazy and I would say, yeah, it's a crazy project, but it's fun. That kind of thing. Basically what I'm telling you guys right now. And uh, you say that enough times um, and you keep working on it and uh, eventually someone says like, hey, you know, this, I... I, I think you know. I think you're right. Maybe this isn't such a crazy thing. Maybe we do want to be working on this. So, um, yeah, I, I I think you have to get there's a, there's a there's a sort of right place, right time kind of kind of thing to it. Mm -hmm. But um, I think if you're if you're enthusiastic about something and you want to tell people about it and you want to work on it, I think that uh, enthusiasm breeds enthusiasm in others. Mm -hmm. All right, so I have another question, and uh, some of this stems from uh, the the idea for this particular talk uh, was actually Aaron's idea, and it's unfortunate that he couldn't be here and part of it, but um, he was talking about the future of Ruby and, and how the VMs relate to that, and so I'm interested in your take on that. How, how do the different VMs affect the, the, you know, the future of Ruby? Where, where, do, where do you see those kind of tying together? Um... Well, I, I mean, it's it's an interesting time. Uh, I I don't think that I think that um, I don't think Ruby's really going anywhere. Um, so I think it's still a good I think it's still a good place to be. Um, it's certainly in a, a certain uh, the one thing that is very um, uh, positive for me is I see a lot of um, people who care about Ruby and who sort of this this goes sound kind of douchey, but who want to innovate, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, who want to like push it forward? Who want to do all these weird, crazy things and change it and how it could be? And you know, like the fact, like when years ago when I started this project, and then there was and JRuby had been around before that, and then there was a, you know Ruby on Parrot, and there's all you know Maglev, all the sort of explosion of things. Um, people actually said like, isn't it? Is it bad that there's all of these? 
implementations of Ruby that people that keep, people keep building? Is it going to suck the air out of the room for other people? And I think the answer has been that no, that largely it hasn't sucked the air out of the room out of the room for anyone. What it all it has done is it has showed that there's people who want to be working in the space and who want to keep making Ruby better and who are uh, finding ways to do that. Um, so that's that's on that. I mean, as for what. As for if you want me to get out my crystal ball or put on my Oracle's hat or whatever it is Oracle's wear. Um, yes, please. <laughs> um, uh, I, uh, I, I would say that uh, people ask me this all the time, like, do I want Rubinius to be the main Ruby VM? And uh, my answer is always the same, is that I, uh, my opinion of this doesn't matter. It's not up to me. Like, I don't, I don't have a... Um, a giant marketing machine behind me. I don't have a a, a way of getting pe- of forcing people to do something. Right. All I can do is build the best possible thing that I can build for myself, and that people and that you know and people when you know take requests and stuff and make the best thing that for everyone involved, and <clears throat> hopefully that um, leads to some kind of success. Um, and th- that has been that has worked as thus far. Um, so I, I would say I would sort of leave it at that. So you said um, about people wanting to innovate, and I've noticed in the changes in Robinius over time, it seems like you you guys like to experiment inside the VM a little, like you know, let's try out this new form of concurrency <laughs> or or stuff like that. Can you talk a little about that and why sure. you do that? Yeah, sure. So I, I'm a big proponent of. Of uh, so I mean, Rubinius was starting with me, kind of just um, tinkering. Me just sort of screwing around, fiddling around, finding out what was fun, and I would add weird, crazy experiments. And uh, some of you may remember I did this thing before Rubinius called Sydney, which was this big, crazy patch to one eight two or whatever it was, one eight three. Um, that didn't really go anywhere, but it was sort of this place where I could just write all kinds of weird, crazy crap, and. Um, Rubinius is the same way. I'm not. I'm low. I, I I try not to say no. I try. If someone has some weird, crazy idea, myself included, I rather just um, indulge that idea and see see what can come out of it. Um, in the specific case, like, uh, and uh, we'll probably get into this a little later. I'm working on um, sort of this 2.0 for Rubinius 2.0 right now, and the big thing is that it removes. Um, it has full concurrency, so it's the concurrent. In this is exactly the same way the JVM is concurrent. It doesn't lock. Threads can run exactly on the same time. You can make use of multiple cores, all this kind of stuff. And um, the, that work essentially came out of me um, uh, sort of. Uh, <laughs> this is going to sound bad because I'm going to get this all the time, but it came out of a dare. Someone sort of dared me to do it. <laughs> and uh, I decided, like, oh, all right, you know, it's been enough time. Maybe I'm gonna give it a week. I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna totally just tear into this thing. And I'm gonna see how far I can get in a week. And in a week, I got like so much further than I thought I would get. And so I realized like, okay, this is a totally realistic thing to do. And so we pushed forward, and now it's working great. Um, so we I'm I'm all for basically not you know people sort of picking their own picking their own poison and um, kind of going going weird and crazy. I mean. Um, We've rewritten the the bytecode compiler a few times, really, just because we people get sick of it, or you know, have weird things, or it's badly organized, or whatever, and so it would get rewritten. And we, okay, great, we're it's rewritten, and we'll go on with life now. So, um, yeah. 
All right. Well, related to the concurrency, and, and this is something that came up for me at Mountain West Ruby Conference when uh, Yehuda got up and he talked about the future of Ruby, and he uh, he it led to this long talk with him and Jim Wyrick, and and basically the talk was I would ask him a bunch of really fundamental questions that I didn't know the answers to, and then they would use terms that I didn't understand, so I'd ask him about those. Okay. And um, you know, so we started talking about the global interpreter lock and things like that. And I guess my question is, because I, I brought it up with uh, Jameis Buck a couple days ago when I sure. talked to him, and uh, he said that it would probably take more than just removing the global interpreter lock and, and making Ruby work around that to, to get it to be fully concurrent. And, uh, and so I guess my question is twofold. Uh, what, what kinds of things did you have to do besides working around or removing the global interpreter lock to get it to be fully concurrent? And the other question, and I think this this is something that uh, some of our other panelists might be able to answer too, is how do you see uh, concurrency, you know, playing into what we currently can't do well with the current Ruby implementation? Sure. So, um, wait, what was the first question? What uh, what did you have to change other than removing or working around the gill in order to make oh, it yeah. work well so as a concurrent language? Okay. So. Um, the gill is a crutch. Um, it is there to say that the entire VM is not thread safe. And, it's, and so, you know, in order to do anything VM related, you have to hold it. So you kick the crutch out from under it and the last so, one it falls down? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, so basically what I ended up doing, there's multiple pieces. So remove the gill and then go through and look at so Rubinius has one has because of the approach that we've taken we had something really big on our side we have a minimal amount of unmanaged code if you will we have a minimal amount of C++ code that I had to go through mm -hmm. and so I would go through these all the C++ data structures and I would say like all right is this thing going to get used concurrently and if so how should it function concurrently a simplest possible case I can give you here is a simple table Right? The symbol table is implemented in C++ because it's so, such a low-level thing. It has to exist all the time. Um, so two threads could be asking for a symbol at the same time. So we would need a way, we would just use normal, exactly the normal procedures, nothing crazy, just add, a, add some kind of locking inside the symbol lookup just to do that. Right? Mm -hmm. And go through all of those data structures and do the same thing. And it was practical in terms of Rubinius because, like I said, we have a minimal number of those data structures. Um, I can write them on a whiteboard. I can draw little boxes and I can label all of them uh, pretty easily. And so because of that, it was, a, it was, a, it was not a trivial task, but it was a, a task easily tackled. It wasn't this daunting thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so so, that, was so that was sort of phase one. Phase two um, is the fact that now you've got Ruby code that is going to be running fully concurrent. That it wasn't before. Um, so now any line of Ruby code can be running simultaneously with any other line of Ruby code, basically. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out, okay, well, what, what, how do you want to deal with the, you know, the currently that that concurrently running Ruby code? Well, first off, the VM can't crash if you're running Ruby code concurrently. That's what we did in that. That's what we did in step one. But now in step two, we may get this weird, inconsistent Ruby objects, right? Mm -hmm. So. A good example here is a bug I fixed just this week, just yesterday, um, where uh, two threads were requiring net HTTP at the same time. 
And because of the timing of them, they actually both succeeded. And so you had two threads simultaneously requiring the same file and running the same code to initialize NetHTTP at exactly the same time. And uh, obviously it caused all kinds of totally weird bugs. And so I had to go in and I added a lock around the require machinery so that they would be lockstep. So these threads would have to wait so that they could actually check whether or not a file was getting required. And then we, so we do that in, at different points in time, right? Um, the, third, the third way is we don't want locks though. So um, if we were to go, if I were to go through and I were to just say like, okay, well, I'm just gonna tackle this by, I'm gonna add a lock to every single data structure, every Ruby object, I'm gonna lock everything. Um, it wouldn't be any better than the gill for the most part because you'd be locking everything everywhere and you'd mm -hmm. take these huge overheads. And in fact, things like array string hash, um, people have come to expect a certain level of performance from them. And if and Char Charles Snutter could talk, has, we've talked about this at length for years now. You can't really add locks to those because people they'll slow them down to such a degree that people will basically just file tickets all the time about how much you know your X implementation sucks because array is slow or whatever. So you have to structure the code instead in a way that allows for um, uh, a degree of concurrency that will keep the data structure working even if it is being manipulated at two objects at the same time. So in the case, like in the case of JRuby, and it's the same with Rubinius, um, if you get, you can get these weird cases in array where um, uh, you get these strange concurrency error exceptions being raised because those will be detected for some, you know, basically these kind of interesting cases where we, we do those instead of having locks for that kind of stuff. So it's really these sort of three steps. And originally, so, um, my opinion of this whole project was actually the same as Jameis's before I started this. Oh, it's going to be super hard. It's going to be most code isn't going to run. We're going to have to need locks everywhere. And uh, strangely enough, that is not true. In in theory, you would think that's true, but um, in practice, it's not actually true. Um, Rails runs fine even without a lot of even with this crazy weird require bug. Rails ran fine. Huh. Interesting. So I I think you kind of hit on this there, but. Um, I was curious to know if the VM developers communicate with each other and work together to solve problems. You did mention there that that uh, you and Charles Nutter have discussed things, but then along similar lines, do um, you know you're doing some experimentation now in Rubinius? So is there a chance that as you guys prove that you know Ruby can live without the gill or whatever? Do you think there's a chance that that could some of that work could filter to the other VMs? Um, yeah, we totally worked together. Um, it, it, people actually thought for a long time that we were sort of, that we would be enemies in a way because we sort of are competing. But um, I don't, you know, it was a big enough pawn for everybody. So uh, we, yeah, we've definitely um, brainstormed on algorithms and ways of handling problems, all that kind of stuff for years now. Um, and. Uh, APIs have flowed between us. Like I said, this concurrency error thing is obviously something that <coughs> Rubinius is taking from JRuby, and um, like the FFI layer was something that I worked on in Rubinius because we needed it that flowed out into JRuby, right? And that's fine. That's I'd love for that. I love when that happens. So uh, we do a lot of communication um, in that regard. Um, uh, back in the day when Maglev first started, Maglev actually 
uh, was is a fork of Rubinius's kernel that has been probably un totally different now. But originally they had just we just told them like, hey, you can just take all the Rubinius code and just do whatever you want with it. So that's that was sort of their starting ground. Um, so we definitely help out and communicate like that. Um, there, as we figure out uh, problems, answers to problems, some can be fixed and some cannot. So um, the the problem of the gill, um, I'm sorry to say, likely cannot be fixed in MRI. Um, uh, and the reason is that doing so would require rewriting pretty much every single C function in the MRI. Um, it is it. Uh, they're all, for the most part, written to expect the gill, and because all of that code is unmanaged, it doesn't do bounds checking. It'll just oh oh yeah, this is a char star. Let me grab that. Let me cast to a char star. Let me walk through it as memory. If someone at the same time is say truncating that or doing something else, they can get the completely wrong thing and just walk off into memory and corrupt the whole thing and then the VM crashes. So because they have so much unmanaged code, it, is, it becomes this sort of maintenance and rewrite nightmare. Um, but there are certainly things that have trickled out from the different VMs um, into, other, into other spaces. Interesting. So one, one other question I have about concurrency, and that is, is um, if, if let's say that I'm implementing a library, uh, what, what things do I need to be aware of uh, with implementing my library to make sure that it's uh, fully concurrent and, and will work well, won't get any weird issues when I'm running it under JRuby or Rubinius or something else that will uh, allow it to be executed concurrently? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is just to organize all of your, all, all the state around um, some instance, you know, and this is this is why most Ruby programs work fine is because most Ruby programs do that exact thing, right? So don't try not to have a lot of shared global state. Um, um, and even if you have an object, even if you don't use locks, even if you just have one object that has its own state that is, you know, uh, like a, a good a good example here would probably be like if you're writing an HTTP library, an HTTP client. Mm -hmm. um, if you make when you make a new HTTP client and you connect out, obviously the socket for that connection should live within that connection and all those sorts of normal things that you would do, because that way all of those individual pieces can just be you can have multiple instances that run on different threads, right? You don't have to worry. You can just basically tell the person, oh well, this this library is not thread safe, so make sure that you use a separate instance per thread. And that that's a very that's the simplest possible way, and actually that. That is a very easy way to do it, and it will work um, in pretty much everywhere that you want to do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you have that, where, where either, there's, so there's two cases that you're obviously going to need explicit thread safety. Um, one is where you're, you're going to have this shared state um, that's some sort of shared global state. Um, and you're going to obviously need locking because those thread, threads are going to be um, accessing them mutually. Right. Mm -hmm. um, another place is obviously if you have an app, something that is designed to be run between threads, right? So if your library itself explicitly internally uses those threads, then those are the you know where all the okay, this is going to be a piece of shared state, and that's going to be a piece of shared state, and those are the places that you would want to have that that locking done, right? Um, but the first case is easy is totally the easiest one, and that that's the one I steer toward. To, 
steer people towards. Because as long as it is told, as long as your state is encapsulated inside one object, even if you have to tell people, oh well, um, this thread, this library isn't thread safe. You need to add a lock around its usage. That's fine too. You're you're basically saying like I I don't I don't care to deal with this other part, but I've at least made it easy for you. That makes sense. So Evan, you said that you can't really. Um, you know, decide if Rubinius uh, becomes Ruby 2, that's not really a decision in your hand or whatever, but what sure. would you like Rubinius to become? What what role would you like it to fill in our community? I'd like, I, I, I would like uh, people, I would just like people to use it. I'd like to hear that people like it and that it makes their um, Ruby um, experience good. Um, the level of uh, usage or majority usage or whatever is not super, it, again, because that's out of my hands, I honestly don't have much of an opinion on it. I don't think about it. Instead, I just think about like um, when someone has a, so when someone says, okay, well, you know, Rubinius, could Rubinius do this? This would make my life a lot easier. Then I, I honestly, I think a lot about that because that person has a specific thing that could make their life better. Um, a, a, just a simple quick example of that is, um, and it's kind of a hilarious example is the backtraces. Um, Rubinius has these backtraces that are very specific to Rubinius that convey a lot of information. And I think, oh, we've had those backtraces for oh, probably three or four years. And I think in three or four years, I have worked on them a total of one hour. So that wasn't sitting down and working on it for one hour. That was like five minutes here, five minutes for the first implementation, five minutes somewhere else, 10 minutes another place. But it is easily one of the things that I hear the most about Urbanius. Like I love working on it because it conveys all this pieces, all these pieces of information to me. So um, it's really about making the making the people who want to use Urbanius um, happy. And obviously, I make those people happy, and they'll want to use it in their companies and that kind of thing. And that's 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 what I want. So one last question, kind of not on Urbanius this time. Um, Evan, didn't you recently speed up the gem index quite a bit? I did. Did that come out of your experience in working with Rubinius, or was that just a side fun project? No, that was just that was just me doing them a favor. Um, doing everybody a favor. Yeah. No, no I, kidding. Yeah, I um, it's yeah. So what happened was um, I've been um, I've been talking with. With Nick, the main, you know, Nick uh, Q, what's his name? Toronto. There you go. Um, I can't, I'm bad with names, so I'm not even going to attempt his last name. So um, he, uh, we, we talked, you know, we're friends. We've talked a bunch of times. And if we're friends, I should probably be able to pronounce his last name, but that's another <laughs> note. Um, you, you were friends. Yeah, we were friends, but tell him here's this. Right. Uh, so, uh, uh, he had been saying that he was worried that the the you know Ruby gems is going to get overloaded and this kind of stuff. And actually, um, that I, so I've been more active with Ruby Central and the Ruby Gem server side because I wanted to help them out because I feel it's an important thing to do. And um, while we, we are having a conversation about you know what's taking the longest time on the server and the gem indexes generating the gem indexes came up, and so I you know gem cutter is great because. Nick's got all the code on GitHub. I just downloaded it and got a database dump and started just sort of doing performance tuning. And there we go. Took about it. Only took about an hour. So awesome! Thank you. Wow. Sure. Now bundle install will only take us two years instead of five. Yeah. Well, we've got Gosh. another. Yeah, bundle. Or, yeah. So there's, there's. I don't know. These might not be. 
release thing. Oh no, I think it is. So like for Bundler one one, they're supposed to work. They're trying to get some other um, hooks into RubyGems.org so that it will speed up bundle installs and stuff like that. So hopefully that'll that'll help too. All right, cool. Well, I'm going to go ahead and. Uh wrap up this section of the podcast um i, I really ha- try and keep this on on uh on schedule so that we can get done within the hour that we kind of promised to our listeners sure. so so we're going to go ahead and move on to the the picks of the week um and this is something that i forgot to warn evan about so we'll let him go He's last totally again unprepared. we'll let him go last so he he has about uh what five ten minutes to come up with something <laughs> <laughs> but, i'll come up with something but anyway um the the picks of the week are just things that you know you found that you you like essentially, and it can be things related to your coding practices or just anything else really. I mean, you know, if you find a nice office chair, you know, it doesn't particularly affect your your coding, but you know, it, it's still something interesting that people might want to hear about. And I'm I've already picked up several things from last week that uh, I've I've been really excited about. So anyway, we're gonna go ahead and start with James. And uh, James, what's your pick this week? Okay, so Evan, am I right that you're about to have a baby? Who, me? Evan. Evan? Sorry, say that again? Am I right that you're about to have a baby? I am. Okay, so here's my picks just for you. Um, Mm. When I was having my baby, I read tons and tons of parenting books, most of which are terrible. So (laughs) I'll do you a favor and tell you the two really good ones. Okay. And All right, you ready? Yep. The um, Brain Rules for Baby is an awesome book. It's about uh, how our brain works and how we learn things, and they use that to tell you things you can do for your kid to help them learn things. So just to give like one simple example, um, kids, if you praise their effort over their ability, then it encourages them to do more and try harder things. So for example, if they come home and, and uh, you know, get a good grade on a test, instead of saying, you're so smart, if you just say, wow, it's obvious you worked really hard or something like that, then sure. you're saying that they worked hard and, and that's great and it encourages them to do more and try harder things. And the studies show that they will actually take on bigger problems and they'll be more comfortable with failures because they know they can just work harder. So it's a really cool book that teaches you a lot about how we learn and think and and that's cool. And then the other book that uh, I can't live without as a parent is called Free Range Kids. And it's basically about the culture of fear that we live in as parents about like, um, uh, you know, can you let your kid talk to strangers and things like that. And it goes through and gives you the actual hard statistics on, you know, how many kids have died from poison Halloween candy. Any guesses? <laughs> Anybody want to take a guess? No, I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess zero. You are exactly right, sir. Yep. Never. It yeah. was a. It was a column in a newspaper one time. So all the horrible things we've done to our holiday are over an imagined problem that's never actually happened. That's great. Uh, so, got- those books are awesome, and I recommend both of them to all parents. So we have this, my wife, Abby, has a book called The Panic-Free Pregnancy, which is sort of like this book that specifically goes through to refute other books. So it's like, yeah, by the way, you it's like there'll be sections where it'll say like, you probably have this other book and they talk about this. Don't worry about that. 
<laughs> nice. That's exactly what Free Range Kids is like. It basically cool. says awesome. things like, you know, if you see it on the news, you can forget about it because <laughs> the news the news only covers the one in a million things that never happened to anybody, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. right. When you said Free Range Kids, I was thinking like organic meat. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um... It's people! <laughs> yeah, and you were talking about the other technique of, of praising effort, and I can tell you after having worked with Dave that it works on him, too. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, all right, Dave, go ahead and share your picks. Uh, so, I may be committing a social faux pas here, but I'm actually going to pick uh, something of my own, uh, which is, uh, this weekend, I, I swore in my wrath that I would never write another frickin' line of JavaScript again. And um, CoffeeScript is uh, a great way to get away from doing JavaScript because it compiles down to JavaScript. And it compiles down to JavaScript that's better than most, jo most JavaScript programmers can write. So I realized I need a good way to do this. And so I thought, well, there needs to be a cookbook for this. So I went out and launched coffee, coffeescriptcookbook.com. And uh, being a complete spaz, I went out, launched the site, and then I realized I needed to do two things. Uh, the first one was I needed to go tell the CoffeeScript guys that, uh, that that's now existed. I'm like, oh, hey, you know, let's talk about community involvement. Yeah. Hi, guys. I started a cookbook. And uh, the second thing I needed to do was uh, write my first line of CoffeeScript ever. So um, I've had people come back and say, oh, I can't contribute to the, the, the cookbook because uh, I just don't know enough CoffeeScript. And I'm like, baloney. I, I launched the whole site. There's a contributing guide. It's completely open source. Um, so my pick is, is for everyone else, please come to coffeescriptcookbook.com and start adding uh, idiomatic CoffeeScript recipes so that we can actually uh, get a great resource out there for people. Ready, fire, aim. I love it. Yep. All right, Peter, what have you got for us? I just wanted to say to James, actually, that you worked really hard on those items that you put in today. Just wanted to congratulate <laughs> you. That's oh, right. Okay. took like nine months. <laughs> Yeah, apparently it works really well. Um, yeah, um, I kind of like shot my wad last week, I guess, um, throwing out just tons of books and things, just kind of used up all my good uh, items. So I'm going to give you some not quite so useful items this week. Um, I guess the one thing I really want to push is uh, Railscasts. I actually mentioned Railscasts last week, but uh, as you may have seen or may not, um, he's launched, Ryan, you know, basically Ryan Bates has launched a new design on there. So uh, very interesting. I must admit the, the logo perhaps hasn't gone down quite so well with um, some people and it does look a bit different. Um, but it's just cool that the, you know, the videos are bigger. You can watch them on the page and all that kind of stuff. So absolutely awesome. Love his work uh, as always. Um, I also want to recommend MailChimp, which you may have also heard of, which is uh, like an, an email delivery service uh, specifically for sort of doing lists and you know newsletters and stuff like that, which is uh, something I've been getting into a lot lately. Um, you know, just their, their service has been second to none, and it's great if you want to put together in, uh, any kind of list, um, and especially if you want to put together like a really small one, like I think under two thousand, you can get a free account on there now. So uh, I pay quite a bit because I've got you know quite a few subscribers now, but if you've got under a certain amount, you can go on there free. Deliverability, excellent. You know, just uh, can't say enough good stuff about them. So, um, yeah, definitely set something up on there if you've uh, got the audience. Um, and last but not least, this one is perhaps going to make things a little bit indecent, but you don't have to visit if you uh, don't like this kind of thing. Um, there's a site called sickypedia.org. Um, that's basically s i c k i pedia.org, and 
it's kind of like you, um, where you just go on and like you post a joke and then it gets either voted up or down and then it shows you like the, the jokes that got voted the best for each day, week and so on. But they are really crude, very extremely not safe for work. Um, and I've actually picked, and I mean, that's kind of my sense of humor. I'm kind of uh, okay with that. But there is actually one clean joke on there, so I just thought I'd bring that one clean joke into the show. Um, this was one of the hottest jokes this week. It was parallel lines have got so much in common, it's a shame they'll never meet. Nice. And I'll leave it with that. <laughs> nice. I love a good joke. It's a good way to start the day. Yeah. Oh. All right. Well, thanks, Peter. Um, so I, I'll give a couple. Um, I have just started using Vim again. I, I used it off and on when I was a systems administrator because I could always count on it being on the machine that I was working on. And so uh, I've picked up Mac Vim. That's one of my picks. And uh, the other pick that's related to that is uh, Janus. Emacs. <laughs> Emacs. Um, it's Janus, J-A-N-U-S, and it is a GitHub, um, a GitHub project by uh, Carl and uh, Yehuda, and it's under their Carl Huda account on GitHub. And uh, what it is is it actually sets up a whole bunch of stuff for your uh, Vim uh, setup. And, uh, you know, kind of bootstraps everything so that you don't have to figure out everything in your VimRC. Um, it, it does a lot of the syntax highlighting and stuff for you and, and adds a whole bunch of other nice conventions for you to, uh, to get a little bit more out of Vim. So uh, those are my two uh, tech picks. I also want to point out that we've been a little bit remiss in talking about the different VMs and not mentioning RVM, uh, which is something that everybody should go check out so that you can try out all of these different um, virtual machines like Rubinius and JRuby. Um, you can also get Ruby 1.9 on there if you haven't just installed it or compiled it from scratch. So uh, I want to point those out. And finally, um, I also want to uh, turn everybody on. There's uh, onto a book series that I found on iTunes, and it's called Trader Tales um, by Nathan Lowell. Um, I've listened to the first three books, and, and they're awesome. So if you just do a, a search in iTunes for Trader Tales, there are six books, um, and, and they're awesome. And I, I listen to them while I'm coding and stuff. So uh, anyway, that, that's what I've got. Uh, cool. Evan, do you have any picks or anything that you want to share with us? Sure. So um, I'm kind of a minimal editor command line person. So like, uh, if I learn a new trick or something that I do that I could use every day. If I learn a new trick once per year that actually I stick with, that's a lot for me because my muscle memory is just just sucks for it. So I only I can only do a few things that once I once I get them they don't bug me. I stick to them. But Rubinius is a very large repository. So for the most part, when I'm searching for for files, I would use ACK, which is a sort of like a better grep. Colors, it does all this other kind of stuff. And, which is fine, but it's actually kind of slow. It's a lot slower than grep. So a lot of times I'd be like, oh, this is taking too long and I would just use grep. So someone finally told me, or whatever, that there is git grep that um, will only grep the things, it will ignore all your ignored files and it will do all this kind of stuff, but it will do very similar color coding and all this co to ACK, but it's super fast. So that's my pick. Awesome, awesome. Ooh. I'm gonna have to check that out. And and I know Dave well enough to know that his the wheels in his head are turning. <laughs> oh, I just uh, uh, my experience with ACK is that it's actually faster than grep. Um, oh, but Ooh. but for if you're trying to do a find dot grep, um, that's excruciatingly slow. 
compared to uh, ACK. We mean uh, find crap. Uh, like if you want to, if you want to search all the files in a in a directory tree, if well, you do find, that, yeah, if you I... like, so if you do like a find dot pipe into exargs, um, that takes forever. Um, now does now does Git grep actually dive into like the Git history, like the Git log and all that stuff? I don't think it does. I mean, I think it can perhaps, mm-hmm. and I could probably just look. But yeah. I think what it does is it basically just looks through the current, the working copy, and ignores all the ignored things. And um, so, like, let me give you an example. So, Rubinius is big. It's a hundred megs Git repository, mm-hmm. and um, it has a huge number of. Uh, it has this. We have this this directory called external libs, which has things like libffi and LLVM and Onigaruma and all this stuff that we use to build Rubinius. I almost never want to look through those things. Yeah. But when I type ack, it, it invariably searches all of those things first before it uh, looks even for the, the files that are in the directory that I wanted to look for. Right? right, right. And so if I use git grep, it just, we actually have the external libs directory as a git ignore because we, ah, we don't. Ah, that's the difference. Effects. Okay, yeah. And so it, it is super fast. That's cool. That's cool. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Um, Thanks, everybody, for coming out. We uh, had on our panel again uh, James Edward Gray, uh, Peter Cooper, David Brady, Charles Maxwood, and Evan Phoenix. And uh, just thanks once again for coming on to the podcast. Um, The music I got off of the Free Music Archive, and it is by a band called Wet Nurse, and it is called Not Your Choice. So I want to thank them as well. And uh, we will catch you next week. We'll be talking about... Uh, templating languages, uh, specifically things like uh, ERB or Hamel or what is it, Slim, uh, Mustache, things like that. So uh, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, then come back and uh, catch us next week. Oh, one other thing, we are in iTunes now. So if you go to rubyrogues.com, on the right there's a little iTunes icon. If you click on that, then it will take you into iTunes so that you can... Uh, you can check out the podcast and subscribe there. And uh, just thanks once again to everybody who's listened and who has uh, let their friends know about it. Uh, We appreciate it, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, everybody. Leave a review. Yeah, leave a review. (laughs) Bye.